Now, I don't know what you ate this morning. Uh, who likes a cooked breakfast? Uh, who would have a cooked breakfast every day if they could, if their doctor thought that was a good idea? Uh, who would go with cereal? Uh, see, I, I would go for the bacon and eggs every time. You know, sizzling and plain. You can almost... Yeah, you can almost smell it. So delicious. Uh, don't shout it out, but does anyone know the fundamental difference between eggs and bacon? Anyone know the difference between eggs and bacon? Don't you? That's all right. I'm glad a couple of people know already. Well, I'll tell you later, so you have to listen up. Okay. Um, We're talking this morning about being true worshippers of God. Uh, Do you think you're a true worshipper of God? How would you know if you are one? Uh, Do you need to know? Well, you do need to know because in John chapter 4, Jesus says, God is looking for worshippers who will worship him in spirit and truth. That, that is who God is after. In Philippians 3.3, a Christian is defined as someone who worships in the spirit, whatever that means. In Revelation 11.1, 1, heaven is the home of the true worshippers of God. And as we begin this final section of Romans today, which will take us through the, the last four chapters over the next couple of weeks, uh, Paul turns to the issue of, of the Christian life in practice and he describes it straight away as, as one of true spiritual worship to our Heavenly Father. So it's pretty important to know if you are a true worshipper of God or not. Now the idea of worship may conjure up for you all kinds of things in your mind. I've got some slides up here. If uh, Dave's got it all lined up at the back for me, hopefully this works. Uh, what does your mind think of when you when you think of worship? Do you think of uh, uh, fail? Have I turned it on? No, that's a good start. <coughs> hey, there you go. There's some worshippers, are they? Uh, true worshippers on their pilgrimage to Mecca. That's uh, Mecca. Uh, if you if you don't know that. Uh, is that what your mind goes to when you think of worship? Or maybe you think in more gory ways. Has this got focus? Ritual sacrifice. Is that is that true worship? Am I? Let's have another attempt at this. Maybe your mind go no, this I'm gonna give up on this. Uh, maybe your mind goes to church services. There you go. Looks a little bit like ours, a bit fuller than this morning. Uh, and so on. I mean, a lot of people will describe church as, as worship services. Uh, or maybe uh, you think of the next one. There you go. Worship music, uh, guitars, eyes closed, raised hands. Is that true worship? Uh, if so, we're probably in struggling on that front. Anyway. Well, as it turns out, true worship, as God defines, is really none of those things. Well, at least it's so much more than those things. It's summarised for us in verses 1 and 2 of our passage. He said, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He says it another way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And so here is God's vision for your whole life. Uh, it's a life which is possible, and though it sounds impossible, a life which is profound, 
really the only life you can have with true meaning and purpose, a life which counts, that's lived for him in everything. And what I want to do today is just show you three big ideas about this true worship from those two verses and then think through together the way that works itself out in practice, which is really what the rest of the chapter is. It's just examples of how this all works out in practice. So first idea then, uh, true worship. True worship is always a response. It's a response to who God is and what he's like and what he's done. It's a response. Uh, You see it there in verse 1. He says, therefore, in view of something, in view of what? God's mercy. To put it negatively, true worship is never about, uh, is never something we do to win God's favour. It's not something we do to manipulate God or to get our own way or to make him love us. It's not a religious duty by which we earn our way to heaven or any of that. Positively, true worship is a response to all of God's incredible mercy and generosity to us. It's it's a response that's driven by gratitude. And it's not surprising the final section begins that way because everything leading up to this point has been about the mercies of God. And that could almost be the theme of of the first 11 chapters of Romans uh, in view of the fact that we were snatched from the jaws of hell by his love, uh, turned by him from being God's enemy, speeding down the road to ruin, hating God, ignoring God, and yet he lovingly, kindly adopted us into his family when we didn't deserve it as beloved children of God. Uh, He paid for us on the cross to come home by the blood of his son. He, He forgave us. Uh, in view of his mercy and giving us his Holy Spirit who's with us even in the darkest places, who, who prays with groans that we can't express even when we don't know what to pray. In view of his mercy and giving us a sure and certain hope of the future in glory with him in heaven, which, which the sufferings of this life cause us to groan and to long for uh, and through which he shapes us and moulds us, he says. In view of his mercy, of his promises that he'll never leave or forsake us, uh, those who he's chosen, his love is unshakable, it's unbreakable, it's unstoppable. In view of his mercy, even in the last three chapters of how he's hardened Israel so that we Gentiles in the far reaches of this earth might have the opportunity to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ and come in. It's all his mercy, it's all his kindness, it's all his generosity. It's undeserved, truly loved. We are his. And so true worship, he says, stems from incredible gratitude and overwhelming thankfulness to our wonderful, merciful God who would bring us undeserving ones into his family. It cannot be about earning God's favour when we already have his favour in abundance. That's the first idea. The second idea, the true worship of God is a 24-7, 360-degree affair. Uh, It's everything. Negatively, true worship is not something that happens at special times and in special places. It's not limited to particularly religious activities. Positively, true worship takes place all the time in every sphere of our life. 
24-7, 360 degrees in family life, in our work life, in the, in the way we live as community members and, and friends. And yeah, You think of the image that he uses here. He says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I mean, when you think about it, living sacrifice, that, that is kind of a bizarre image, isn't it? A bizarre thought. I mean, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, if you, you know, like spending time reading Leviticus, there's one sure thing for any animal that's about to be sacrificed. It's not coming back from the dead. It's, it's toast. It's <laughs> gone. You know? uh, the animal has its throat slit. It has its blood poured out on the floor. Uh, it's chopped into tiny pieces. Some of it's cooked and eaten by the priest. The other bits are burnt to a cinder and scattered all around. You can't get more dead. And so the idea of a living sacrifice is kind of strange. But it's a brilliantly vivid way of describing what he's talking about. True worship is where you offer yourself to God, not an animal in your place but your whole self, you're all in. It's about dying to self. It's living for him. It's living for God's pleasure and glory and purposes. It's about saying to God, here I am. Do with me what you want. Uh, What do you want with me today? What do you want with me tomorrow? What do you want with me next week and next year and God willing in, in 30, 40, 50 years time, all my life? How can every moment bring joy and pleasure to you because, you know, I'm yours. I'm yours. It's the difference between eggs and bacon. Huh? What's, what's the fundamental difference between eggs and bacon? Well, the difference is this. The chicken's involved, the, the pig's committed. <laughs> you got to think about it. The chicken's involved. It, it makes a token contribution to the breakfast. The pig's all in. Uh, <laughs> where to be bacon, fully committed, 24-7, 360. I know the illustration doesn't work, and after the 8 o'clock service, a couple of people said, yeah, but, but the pig wasn't willing. We're supposed to be willing. <laughs> True, yes, it fell, fall down to that point, yes. Uh, and, and the pigs are dead. We're supposed to be living. Yes, yes, but take it for what it is. You've got to be bacon and not eggs, fully committed. True worship doesn't happen when people make a trip to the SCG or to Mecca or Borkham Hills or even to St Barnabas. It happens when we commit our whole being to him and not just as an outward show as if that would impress him, but in reality, in every aspect of of life as we saw, work, family, life, speech, neighbourliness. Now, there's a couple of different reactions you may be having at this point. Uh, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's a little bit too full on. That, that sounds like God wants us to be zealots. Uh, that's a bit onerous. Surely God doesn't want all of me. Just, just a little bit, right? Just some maybe, but not all. And I reckon that's the trouble with living sacrifices. They're always wanting to crawl back down off the altar. Didn't Jesus say, you want to be my follower, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. 
I mean, he's given everything for us. But he's calling us to give everything back. Did you hear the warning in that other reading of those three men who came and they, they declared themselves for Jesus? We're with you. We want to follow. But hang on, we've got some other stuff we want to take care of. Uh, family, women, property. You know, the three things that distract everyone, isn't it? Um, what did he say to them? Not worthy of the kingdom. Not worthy of the kingdom. He didn't die for us so we could go on living our own way without him. He died for us because that's what we were doing. He didn't show you his incredible mercy so you, he, you could ignore his call on your life while giving him token lip service. That's to spit it all back in God's face. This is full on, but, that, but that's God's call on you. But then there's another action. There's those of you who might be sitting there thinking, well, I hear what you're saying, I see it, but, but I feel like a complete failure. You want this to be the case, but you feel totally crushed and burdened because all you know is your own weaknesses. And those kind of people are sitting there thinking, how could God ever really love me? I'm such a loser. I'm so broken. How, how could God love this? Paul's not writing to crush us. And you need to take the encouragement from that little phrase at the end there, holy and pleasing to God. I think at the very least he's saying it is actually possible for us all as Christians to, to please God. Sometimes we think because whatever I do will never be perfectly good, therefore it must not be truly good, and so all I ever am is a complete failure as a Christian and that's all I can ever expect to be as a Christian, a complete failure. That's not true. It's not true. It's not true at all. I mean, if you're a parent, you should understand this, or a grandparent. Imagine you tell your, let's say, daughter. I happen to have a few of them. But anyway, um, you say to one of your daughters, Honey, go clean up your room. Yes. Go clean up your room. <laughs> and, uh, but against all odds, promptly and cheerfully, I know you're surprised, bear with me, but, <laughs> but promptly and cheerfully, she runs to her room, 15 minutes comes back and she says, Mummy, Daddy, I've cleaned up my room, come see. Do you go in there and look at the bed and you say, That is so terrible. If you were working in a hotel, you would be sacked. Those toys you put away in their tubs, they're not even colour-coded. <laughs> you look at the clothes folded and put back in the cupboards and say, I could do better myself. Well, the dads aren't thinking that. They're going, actually, that, that's pretty good. But anyway, I, couldn't, I couldn't do better myself. <laughs> that's not what you do as a parent. I mean... It, Maybe you grew up in a family, you know, we just watched Mary Poppins at the school the other day and the dad's like that, isn't he? But if you grew up in a home like that, that's not right and God's not like that. No, you say, honey, thank you, this is wonderful. That's great. Did she do it perfectly? No. Did she do it as well as you could have done it yourself? No. Did she do it without any sort of spot or stain or wrinkle or blemish? No. But was it truly good? Yes. 
done sincerely, cheerfully, obedient, pleasing to her parents? Yes. We've got that category instinctively as parents and yet we lose that category when we think of our Heavenly Father. Take the warning if you're ignoring God's call on your life. If If you think that you can reserve some part of it or most of it or all of it for yourself, take heed of Jesus' warnings. But if your intention is to live for him, take the comfort of knowing that a life orientated towards serving him wholeheartedly is truly pleasing to God because he loves you. Well, let's get back into it. First idea, true worship is always a response to God's mercies. Second idea, true worship is a 24-7, 360-degree affair. Third idea, true worship comes from a changed mind. You see that in verse 2. He says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when the Bible talks about the mind, it's talking about the engine room of of your behaviour, your kind of will. It's not just talking about your mathematical abilities and things like that. It's the centre of our will and being which controls our decisions and choices. Uh, If you remember back to chapter 1, which I know is asking a lot because it was about four months ago, uh, but there was a great long list of all the evils of humanity, kind of read like the headlines of the newspaper. Envy, greed, deceit, sexual debauchery, Uh, Maybe it was a Game of Thrones summary or Fifty Shades of Grey, anyway. But but where did all the evil come from there? It came from a warped mind. He says people ignore God, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship creation instead of creation. So everyone's worshipping something. And what was his judgement? He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The mind controls your action. You've got a depraved mind, you'll do what ought not to be done. Uh, You want to live for God, it's got to come from a renewed mind. It all stems from the mind. And here in chapter 12, that's the source of the life that's freed up to serve God wholeheartedly, the renewed mind. Now, at one level, uh, when we became Christians, God gave us the renewed mind as he cleansed us and gave us his Holy Spirit. He came into our lives to cleanse us and renew us. But at another level, he's talking about having your mind renewed day by day as we go on. And I think what Paul's driving at is that we've got to realise that everything is a battle for your mind. Everything You're in the midst of a battle for your mind. You're the, you're the battleground. And the world's going to keep coming at you and trying to persuade you and seduce you to its desires. And if it can't seduce you, it'll yell at you until you submit. Okay? It's either going to tempt you with sweet, pleasing words or it's just going to scream at you and punch you in the face. And and he's saying you mustn't give in, you mustn't conform to this world because the life of true worship comes from a renewed mind. And so it's actually really important to uh, ponder what are you filling your mind with? As the old saying goes, you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. You spend your whole life filling your mind with drivel, uh, be it TV, Netflix, Facebook, Mills and Boone, the tabloids, hack and slash fantasy novels, or or the more and more horrific crime novels. If that's what you immerse yourself in and dwell on and find titillation by, is it surprising if you struggle to live this kind of stuff out as a Christian? 
You can't live a life of true worship to God that way. Or, or if every moment of every day you fill your mind with daydreams and fantasies about the ocean breeze or the ski trip or the man or woman working opposite or the next fishing trip or planning in minute detail every aspect of retirement. If that, if that's where you find your mind drifting all of the time, again, it won't be surprising if you struggle to live this out as a Christian. You can't live a life of true worship to God that way either. Now, I'm not saying, and this is not saying you don't ever think about those, don't ever read and don't watch TV or anything like that or don't ever plan your leisure or retirement. But I, I, I suspect many of us, are, and I include myself, are soaking ourselves in those things And that's what we're doing with every spare moment. And and when we do it, we're doing it totally uncritically. So that when you do watch and you do dream, at least, at the very least, apply your Christian mind to it. When you're watching your favourite show or reading your favourite book, ask, what what is the gospel that they're preaching to me? What what are they saying is the good life? What what are they saying I need? What's it trying to make me feel? Is it promoting a life that's pleasing to my Heavenly Father? Or is it subtly trying to undermine my Christian convictions and and thinking in some way? And I, I tell you, it's amazing the power of persistent, subtle messages. Think about, just for example, the marriage plebiscite that's coming up. 23 years ago, which is 1994, for those who struggle with maths, um, we were introduced to the first gay couple we were supposed to support and love in a movie. Any movie buffs out there? Think what? 1994. Four weddings and a funeral. The four weddings were all heterosexual couples, all completely dysfunctional. There was divorces by the end of it. Complete disaster. The funeral was of of one member of the gay couple. It was the only loving, stable, kind, generous, functional relationship in the whole movie. But ever since then, almost every show you watch these days has a gay couple, right? And they're always portrayed as the ones in the good relationship, the stable relationship, the committed relationship, that's, that's the only healthy one. Brooklyn 99. I love that show. Modern Family. Uh, the last Star Trek movie. Rogue One, if you listen to the director. Star Wars. You're supposed to understand that that's the blind Jedi and the big black guy. That's their relationship. And it's just this wall. It's a wall coming at you of subtle, positively, subtly, persistently seducing everyone into championing what has been consistently shown by all the research to be one of the most physically, medically, psychologically, socially damaging and destructive sexual lifestyles for the people involved and for those in connection with them. Can you put the next screen up? Uh, here's a book. It's, it's, it's a couple of years ago. Um, uh, in uh, Straight and Now, you'll find a summary of all the findings of the research that was all pro-gay or neutral to the question this, this guy, Thomas Schmidt, put all of the, the research that had been done together. 
summarised it. And it, it's devastating. There's nothing happy about it. It's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle that's a disaster. But fact schmacks. Let alone what God thinks on the matter. We're told that love means live and let live. That's not love at all. You know what that's called? That's apathy. True love is seeing what's good for people and caring for them enough to, to, to go and live for their best. And if that means saying no sometimes, it means saying no. So this is just an example. We're in a battle for the mind in everything. Be careful what you fill your head with. Don't fill it with junk. Especially don't fill it uncritically. What do we do instead? He says, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, Philippians 4 uh, puts it this way. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's what you fill your mind with. Uh, on the Wollongong clergy conference earlier this year, uh, we had a, a couple of hours seminar. Psychologists came to talk about burnout in ministry. There you go. It's a big factor these days that you know you kill your clergy. You gotta watch out, or I'm going to burn out on you. No, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but the psychologist was very interesting. She said uh, she gave two hours of uh, the numerous factors involved, you know, that contribute to to burnout in ministry. But she said the number one predictor of whether someone will likely burn out or not, it's it by a mile is one thing. Quiet times. She said there is almost a zero percent burnout rate for those ministers who have at least four half hour quality quiet times a week where they reflectively and thoughtfully read the scriptures. They're not just kind of going, yeah, dumb thing. Uh, and they pray through the issues that God raises with them. Fancy, almost 0% burnout rate. But I suspect that's not just true for ministers. I, I suspect there's something to that for all Christians. You know? Uh, are you nurturing your Christian mind? What, what are you sowing into here and into here? Because you're going to reap what you sow. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, that's true worship and we've only covered verses 1 and 2. <laughs> We're in trouble there. The rest of the chapter is really just an outworking of all that. It, it's all sorts of examples of what it looks like. It's not an exhaustive list. You know, as if you could tick all this off and say, yep, done it. True worship, done. Oh, I'm awesome. Uh, I, but I just want to pick up three areas that, that he raises here to apply it. <coughs> and you'll see it's all about the mind, being transformed in your mind. First area of application is how you think about yourself. How do you think of yourself? Verse 3, For the grace, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, 
in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Don't believe the world's lies about you or the, only, the lies you tell yourself about you. Uh, though, you know, whether it's the lie that you're the most important person in the world or the opposite lie that you're nothing, you're insignificant uh, and worthless and got nothing to offer. They're both lies, absolute lies from the, the pit of hell. What is the God-honouring, renewed mind way of thinking about yourself? In a measured way, being realistic about yourself and especially about how God has gifted you as a wonderful and unique individual for the purposes of his glory. Isn't that where he goes on? Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's in showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. All kinds of ways. And that's, that's not a complete list either. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I don't think I'm very good at anything. God's not really gifted me in any way. That's not true. You're, you're believing lies. God has absolutely gifted you. And he's, well, he's gifted us with you for a start. Uh, every one of us is a precious gift to the others here. And, and I bet if you were to sit down with any of the mature Christians around here, that, that they'll be able to say, oh, yeah, you're really great at this. Let me encourage you. That, you know, this is, this is, you're awesome. And uh, go, go serve God in that way. And maybe you're not gifted in the same way as you know, a lot of other people might happen to be you're, uh, or the ways that you want to be. That's okay. It's okay. That's great. We're all the richer for having you here who's different. A second area, how do you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you think about church? That's the focus of verses 9 to 13. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honour one another above yourselves. That's really hard to do, isn't it? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual further. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people in need. Practice hospitality. What's the world say about church and your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you can be bothered, if there's nothing better to do, and when you do go, take what you can. What's he saying? He's saying that these are your family, your spiritual family, brought together by God. Think about how you can encourage them, serve them, love them, put them before yourself, go into every conversation with an attitude of how can I encourage you? How can I build you up? How can I help you walk more closely with Jesus Christ? How can I help you take the next step in your faith journey? It may be a hard conversation sometimes, but, but what is it I can give to you to help you move forward? That'll change your conversations at morning too, won't it? I, I think that's something we could really work on at our church. Um, uh, Andrew Evans got a brilliant question. You know, uh, what's been God been talking to you about lately? Right? That's a great question. You know, what 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 issues has God been raising with us in the Bible or in sermon or whatever or in whatever way? But it's not just about how we relate to this church. It's it's 
other brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, the persecuted church. How do we love them? It's extremely relevant as we consider the question of, of Glen Quarry Church this afternoon. There may be reasons that we cannot help or certain ways in which we should not help. But I don't think we can go into this discussion with the predisposition of not wanting to help. We mustn't be afraid of change and we mustn't be resentful. Yes, there have been past hurts that some of you have experienced, but you can't hang on to them. So we've got to just work it out sensibly, together, ask our questions, do our due diligence and work out if and how we can do something. One final area to not be conformed to the world in but be transformed by the renewing of our minds is in how we think about our enemies and persecutors. Uh, It's the whole end of the chapter and it's incredibly challenging stuff and, and I don't want this to be glib or the fact that we didn't spend much time on it that you go away and think, good, good, we don't have to do that one now. <laughs> um, uh, what we're going to do is come back and do a whole week on forgiveness in the school break. I think it's, thing, it's such a big, a big issue. Uh, but here's God's word. Bless those who persecute you. Don't take vengeance. Live at peace as far as is possible. You know, do not contribute to the situation. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, what do you got to do instead? You've got to overcome evil with, with good. You feed your enemy. You love them. It's hard to do, hard stuff. But take heart from the fact that that's exactly the way God treated you when you were his enemy. He was merciful and kind and he called you into his family and forgave us. So... Andrew, eggs or bacon? Which one are you? (laughs) Which one are you? Token involvement, (laughs) full commitment. In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. (coughs) Our Father, these are challenging words. You want all of us. Thank you for your mercy and love that you want us even though we fail and struggle and are weak. Father, thank you that you love us and you're pleased with us. We pray that we would live for you in everything, that we take these words to heart, that our lives might be a true reflection of your work in us and truly devoted to you. Forgive us for it when we fail. Help us to do better. Help us to see ourselves and our church and even our enemies with, with your eyes, realistic, tempered, Help us to see ourselves uh, and what we are good at, that we might serve you wholeheartedly with that. Help us to see our church and other Christians as those who we can love and that we ought to put ahead of ourselves. And our enemies, Father, help us to do this almost impossible thing of forgiving 
and not repaying evil for evil, but overcoming evil with good. Do this work in us, not for our glory, but for yours. Amen.